0: never been described as ecumenical before, Uh, thank you Ollie. Um, So I I, you know this is it's been a tumultuous year as many people have mentioned I'm sorry I missed Friday. As you know I've been quite tied up probably tied up with other things in the National Trust Um, and so I'm really speaking today managing to put my hat on as a cultural historian art historian and curator and, and heritage practitioner and someone who um, has learned firsthand very much the hard way recently, how emotionally fraught um, and politically charged the space in which heritage presently sits is. Um, So that's something I'm really kind of in the back of my mind as I I speak about this. Um, So I decided that trying to talk about the entire National Trust in 20 minutes um, uh, was a little bit too overambitious, and this is some work that I was thinking about before um, Covid hit. Um, Really wanting to put together um, a book and a project around, uh, I suppose, magic, um, supernatural and folklore in the National Trust, Um, probably from a very curatorial perspective, um, but really thinking about how I can approach that with my colleagues and with partners. Um, So really happy to discuss ideas with people either at the end of this or or out of um, this forum. Um, so what I'm going to look at today, I'm going to focus on one of our places, or one of our properties, which is Snow's Hill Manor, which as many of you may know, um, which is near Broadway in the North Cotswolds, and it's a private collection of a unique individual and collector. And for me, it raises many questions about how we connect to the unseen and the forgotten and the intangible in our places. And there's just a, a variety of objects which I'll talk about a bit more um, on this screen. So really this presentation today is an opening exploration and really a set of very open questions around how at the trust we or I might approach the spaces in between, the hidden, the occluded, the ineffable, the intangible and the forgotten. How we use those ideas, narratives and experiences to unlock the objects, collections, spaces, buildings, gardens, parklands and landscapes we care for. Um, and create new ways and connections uh, between individuals and communities and the way they're able to connect with these places and, and collections and um, landscapes, in ways that go beyond the visual, and which is something we've really relied on or long, sorry relied on a lot in the past, and beyond what some, he- what some heritage theorists have called the authorized um, heritage experience. So today, I'm taking on my very unauthorised curator's heritage tour of Snow's Hill Manor. And for me, it's the site where magic was deliberately excluded by the National Trust when it took it on in the 1950s. The collections that were uh, regarded as most problematic and magical were were handed over on indefinite loan to Cecil Williamson at the Witchcraft Museum in the 1960s. And that really was a deliberate attempt to negate those narratives. And then The Witch's Garret, which is uh, quite famous because hardly anyone sees it, which I'm going to show you today, um, remains hidden from visitors today. And that's partly because it's not very accessible, but also it hasn't been part of the mainstream narratives that Trust have wished to present in the past. And, and now as head curator, that's something I really do want to address. So this is Snow's Hill. This is a pic I took about exactly a year ago, actually, on a, a visit. So unfortunately, I do apologise, some of these are my, my own pictures rather than professional ones. So Snow's Hill Manor is a 16th century Cotswold manor house, very traditional, um, purchased by architect artist and designer Charles Paget Wade whose dates are 1883 to 1956. He bought it in 1919 when he returned from the First World War and he donated it to the National Trust in 1951 when he moved permanently to St Kitts for health reasons. Today the experience if you visit the Trust is largely ticketed because it's only small and narrow and there's lots of objects and largely self-guided as well. So this is a picture of Wade in 1932, actually on St. Kitts at the children's uh, tea party at his, one of his estates. So um, Wade inherited his father's consider- considerable stake in the family's sugar plantations in St. Kitts in 1911, and that meant he could give up his career as an architect. Uh, The plantations, you'd be unsurprised to know, originally worked by enslaved Africans and the Wade family received compensation in the 1830s. Wade himself was biracial as his grandmother was a free woman of colour from St Kitts. So it's quite a complex and and involved story which I won't go into too much today um, for obvious reasons. So these are some amazing pictures of Wade. Um, He was uh, a conscripted into the First World War and was very traumatized by the horrors he saw. Obviously, although he wasn't active service, he was mostly an artist and, and recording what he saw. Um, and whilst he was still in France, he saw that Snow's Hill Manor was up for sale and bought it despite it being in a very poor state. Um, he wanted a place to escape the horror and to live out his artistic fantasies and to, con- to gain control of life again in a very performative space. And he, it was a very performative space where he was the main architect, so to speak. Um, And the garden, just going back, which you can just see a little bit of there in that image I took. That was something he co-designed with the very famous leading arts and crafts, architect and designer uh, Mackay, Hugh Bailey Scott. And he really saw the garden as an extension of the house. So, um, Wade uh, amassed huge eclectic um, collections. Actually, I'll go, just go back here. Um, one of those is the most important dress collections in the country, and it's something we still haven't properly explored. Um, in terms of some of the outstanding amount of historic dress there. Um, it, it's incredible, but he wasn't collecting it as a dress collector. It was part of his fantasy world of dressing up, of surprising. Um, he, uh, he used to invite people around to fancy dress parties and really, for, and you can see some of this, him dressed up in some of his many, many guises here, but there are some extremely important objects in that. Um, He was also collected a lot of objects, some of which he'd inherited and some which he purchased, especially so especially after the 1938 when he'd made an agreement with the National Trust to take the house. Um, He just went mad collecting, excuse me, excuse the term, he he just really collected and doubled the size of the collection. Um, So he was very much fascinated by objects made by skilled craftspeople and he did create objects and and art himself. Um, Actually that picture on the left hand corner in the grey hat uh, it's one he painted himself. And he really set out to create a series of spaces. Um, so the main manor house he didn't actually live in, he lived in the priest's house next to it. Um, it was a really um, set of spaces where um, both interior and exterior could be a, a deliberately staged backdrops for his collection and for him to inhabit. Um, and he used to use the, the sort of fabric of the manor to great effect. There were a lot of secret passages and entrances, and the place was, uh, was um, supposed to be haunted, or is supposed to be haunted, and so he would um, take great joy in dressing up in historic, historical dress, sneaking through a passageway, and then surprising people, um, probably terrifying them out of their minds, um, as he would appear from, as if from nowhere. So, there's something about using the uncanny and and very much performing in that space. Um, And so, these are some objects he actually made himself. Um, These are the alchemist niches from 1922, um, and which really um, very much sort of sum up his very theatrical and also sort of magical approach. So um, what I sort of, my, I'm positing here really is that part of that immersive experience that he offered was a sort of deliberate staging of the house as a series of romanticized occult or magical spaces and objects. Um, and just to show you a few things here. So this is the witch's garret, which most people have never seen. It's very inaccessible. And on the picture on the right, you can just see my colleague who's the head of interpretation. the truss disappearing through quite a small hole and in it there's a a magic circle Um, and then you can just see at the back and I'll show you some more close-up pictures. Um, There's some art he created and I haven't yet located the 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 atlas or or Hercules holding the armillary sphere. I haven't uh, located the manuscript that comes from. Um, but the, um, the mandrakes, which I'll show you close up uh, in a moment, they um, are based on, I believe on the medieval herbal the Gart de Gesundheit, from 1485. And the magic circle as well was based on a very specific manuscript um, also from the 15th century. So this is an old picture. This is the only picture you can see online on the left of the witch's garret. Um, this is on the left again, this image not available online, uh, the design for the witch's circle. Um, and yes, it tells you the, the manuscript it came from. Oh, apparently it's an 18th century uh, manuscript actually. And then on the right, you can just see, this is a picture, right? It's not very easy to take pictures in there. It's very dark, the entire house. So this is a picture I took of that magic circle, which is still sort of intact. Um, and I just think it's a really interesting proposition. Uh, who knows, I do not know if he was a magical practitioner. I found no, uh, there's no evidence of that Um, obviously that's trying to find evidence of these things but certainly he wasn't um as as far as we know a member of any of the sort of magical groups where we know who many of the members were Um, but that doesn't mean he wasn't a a practitioner but so and 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 I think it really matters to be honest to me it's really thinking about these spaces as Sort of very performative magical or romanticized magical spaces and it's clear that he was very um, attuned to a lot of manuscripts and used these as his, his source material. I'm just going to run through a few more objects here, so this is a close-up, excuse the wrapped objects in tissue paper at the bottom, when these were taken the house was completely closed. Um, and you know, my experience of this house is very different from most people's because I was basically given a key and, and allowed to run around and do whatever I wanted. So it's less orchestrated and, and far freer than many people's experiences. Um, and so you can see the, uh, uh, the Atlas or um, Hercules figure, and then the two Mandrake figures that come from that 15th century manuscript I was, I was speaking about. So it was de- definitely a very staged space here. Um, and this is the, what's known as the unicorn clock. And you can just see in the right hand corner at the bottom, um, the table of the scale. And those are um, tarot card images based on the Marseille tarot. And I'm just, i just, um, and these are still on the wall and not great condition. Um, it's a very damp house and this is sort of uh, applied paper. Um, but we do also have the designs um, for these as well and there's three of the designs. So um, obviously he he drew them himself, but very much based on that Marseille deck. And just a few other objects. I mean, he extremely eclectic collector, but there does seem to be a focus on objects that have a sort of magical or ineffable bent. On the left is a a witch's bottle, um, whether that's a sort of, uh, I suppose a heritage recreated witch's bottle, Um, or a a genuine one, I'm not sure. It's one of the ones which has silks, very fine silk threads, which are supposed to tangle up the the witch who's trying to attack your property. And on the right, um, that's a reliquary of St Ignatius. So um, it's a wide selection of objects from all over the world as well. And I'll come to that at the end, actually, and how we think about I suppose magical, or supposedly magical objects from other cultures. Um, that's something I still want to explore. Um, I think it's quite interesting, and in then in the objects in the collection become quite disconnected from their original contexts and meanings, and they're reconfigured in entirely different sort of magical space here. And he, this sort of can't continue to the outside. We've got the um, I can't, sorry, can't pronounce it. Uh, Nick. Nick Themeron, Zodiac Clock which the metal work was by George Hart who was from the Guild of Handicraft so he's very interested in astrological and astronomical time I think rather than linear time and I'm going to talk about that in a moment um, and an armillary sphere sundial that he has outside um, which I think has t- been taken inside now and again a great interest in these armillary spheres and these that's one on the left is a picture i snapped when i was there and that's another um another image on the right it's also in the collection so um i think it's interesting it's sort of weighed sort of transforms himself rather than this eccentric architect was his position now who's heir to a sugar fortune he sort of it gives this a sense of metamorphosis into this costumed sorcerer conducting the playful rites of transformation in a series of spaces where friends as well could escape the everyday and stand outside of time again um, as mentioned earlier that sort of um, rejection of modernity and the sort of linear passage of time and I think there's um he, he he has so many objects that relate to sort of cyclical time or astrological or astronomical time, not interested in that sort of linear, linear time of modernity. Um, and you know there's an interesting, really uh, nice anecdote about John Buchan, the author, driving Virginia Woolf, as you do, um, to visit Snow's Hill. Uh, I'm not sure it's in the 20s or, uh, or 30s because he saw it as the most extraordinary place he knew. Um, Wolf, unfortunately, was extremely cross when she missed her train home, um, because despite there being hundreds of timepieces in the house, Wade had not set a single one to the correct time, and he was clearly far more interested in these sort of wider notions of time. So um, Wade's collecting, creating and commissioning of occult and magical objects feels like a way of standing outside of the relentless drive of modernity. And I think very much that's, that sort of drive of modernity was epitomized by the war he saw and survived. And, and I think it's quite interesting that this house sort of sits in a, a similar but different space from the many architects and designers in the late 19th and early 20th century, who sought to create arts and crafts utopias. Um, and Wade's one was very different. It was less idealistic and more one of playfulness and fantasy. So what does and doesn't work at Snow's Hill as as it sort of sits at the moment? um, In many ways, it's a very charming experience. Um, But I'm very aware that having been given the key to the door when it was closed to the public and allowed to sort of run around, essentially, obviously, in a very careful curatorial and conservative way. um, And I got to experience the amazing Witches Garrett and go up there. I know I've had a very different experience from other visitors. So at present, the house very much, I think, as, as Wade did, relies on the mass display of objects and very dim lighting to make it otherworldly. And you can see this is not in the main manor. This um, image here is the bedroom, um, Wade's own bedroom, which is in the separate priest's house. So basically, the, um, I suppose the house itself was a, a site of these sort of magical rooms, but also he carried that on into his living space in the priest's house um, and later on with his wife, Mary from the 1930s. Um, But even for me with my privileged experience and knowledge and understanding of some of the collections without the magician animating those spaces, um, the rooms and objects feel they sit there rather silently like dusty specters. So what I'm interested in exploring, this is partly sort of academic and also partly just thinking about visitor experience. How can visitors have a truly embodied, playful and multi-sensory and magical experience that brings out those hidden stories? And you know, this is something thinking about applying across the trust that allows the glimpse of the hidden corridors behind the walls and the witch's garret. How can this be incorporated into sort of the multiple layered narratives um, that we want to present at our places? How can we connect the houses, the house and gardens to, um, that have always focused on Wade's history? Can we connect those to the wider histories of the property? Um, there's so many other stories around this house that just kind of get negated almost by the sort of dominant narrative, um, sort of moving on, if it lets me. Um, The room in the right, uh, which is known as Anne's room, all all the rooms are named by by Waite himself, Um, is said to be haunted unsurprisingly. Um, The room is named for a 16 year old young woman called Anne Palmer, who in 1604 eloped to the manor, which was a house of a friend with her lover, um, Anthony. and where they were quickly married by a local vicar. The secret lovers were unfortunately caught because she was uh, already promised to another by Anne's guardian, and apparently tried by the star chamber. Um, And we don't know what the outcome of that trial was. But that story itself has become part of the Wade magical mythos of the property. Because apparently he, he took a little scraping of the wood beam and sent it to a renowned medium on the south coast, who Wade claims never heard of Snow's Hill. But on examining the timber, she um, described, "'Tis late at night, in it a girl in a green dress of the 17th century, much agitated, paces up and down. She does not live there and will not stay the night." And then Wade claims it was some years later, he saw papers describing the star chamber case uh, relating to the secret marriage of Anne Parsons. So you know, how much that's him creating this mythos and how much it could be actual event, who knows. Um, it's a great yarn. Um, but there are other ghosts in the house, apparently, such as the zenith room on the left, um, which is the site of a bloody jewel. There's a Benedictine monk from the time when Snow's Hill was part of Winchcombe Ad- uh, Abbey and that of Charles Marshall, who lived at the manor in the first half of the 19th century and whose ghost apparently led his widow to a buried fortune that allowed her to update the house. So these, those ghosts hint at the overlooked nature of the manor's longer history as part of the unique Cotswold, Cotswolds cultural landscape, its time as part of the lands of the church, its previous residents and workers, and its connection to the myths and stories of the place it's rooted in. Can these connections be recovered just as we're recovering the secrets of the spaces and collections in the house? And at the moment, the National Trust is, um, we've been finalising significant frameworks, particularly around buildings and collections. So how do we think about the significance in, far, in a broader sense than the material, um, which has often been done in the past or the sort of fame or the cost of objects? We still need to approach landscapes, actually, in those frameworks. So folklore, spiritual and community experience is part of those new frameworks that we're looking at Um, But how do we think of the significance of the spaces in between, the places that are less tangible and of those stories and oral traditions and hidden and transient meanings and events? I'm also interested in how can spaces like this really sort of ramp up the effect and and embodied experience? How can we think about presence? In many ways, you know, Wade is the great presence in this house at the moment, but, but he's an absence as well. Can this be done through sort of more experiential and multi-sensory approaches rather than sort of predicated on the visual, which is at the moment. Um, And one thing I'm particularly interested in here is how do you approach uh, presenting the uncanny and spiritual heritage, particularly objects with global histories? And this is a Balinese uh, mask, uh, again, uh, relating to stories around witchcraft and which are worn in traditional Barong dances. Um, still performed in Bali and depict the battle between good and evil and there's lots and lots of masks and particularly Balinese masks but objects from all over the world in this collection this is a a Siamese what was called a Siamese magician's hat um, in, in currently in our very poorly written record and I've been speaking to a friend only this morning who used to live in Thailand and um, we were sort of, because that whole aspect of time magic sort of before it became incorporated with Buddhism is is almost forgotten, we were just wondering what sources we could possibly look to. And if you see on the bottom of the underneath the rim, there's sacred geometry, which is very much like the um, Sakyant um, magical tattooing, if people are uh, familiar with that, which is still practiced today by Buddhist monks. Um, and for me at the moment, there's a real failure here, particularly in this room with this incredible collection of um, of Japanese um, samurai armor and, and the way it's presented, which I believe is probably similar to the way that um, uh, Wade presented it in the, the sort of dim lighting that's used throughout the house. And this kind of uncanny and spooky presentation effectively orientalizes and others, um, this presentation of this and, and really you know, it doesn't give those objects themselves justice. It's something that we're particularly looking at at the moment. And for me, this is a real a real failure um, here that we have to be sensitive to, to objects, but where these are, you know, these are uh, cultural objects of, of warfare and, and, and a particular group of people in Japan, they are not spooky objects, but they're presented as such. And it's very deeply prom- uh, problematic. Um, And to come full circle, really, from talking about the sort of origins of the wealth that paid for this house, how do we present um, the ghosts of Padgett Wade's enslaved ancestors, and of the people his English family enslaved in St Kitts? Thank you.